As we continue in our worship this evening, I invite you to turn with me in your copies of God's Word to the first to Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. That's first Corinthians chapter one. We'll begin reading there at verse one. First Corinthians chapter one, starting at verse one. Hear once again the word of our God. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, under the church of God which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ, that in everything ye are enriched by him in all utterance and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that ye come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you unto the end, that ye may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom ye were called unto the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. May the Lord add to us this evening the blessing of his word. We take up in these evenings the study of the church of Jesus Christ. And friend, it will be no surprise to you to hear that, of course, the world has all kinds of ideas about what the church stands for. The purpose and the calling of the Church of Jesus Christ is well defined by the outside world. We're told, of course, that the Church is primarily a civil servant. Her aim is primarily to provide some kind of emotional support for the population. Her aim is entirely human. Her purpose, entirely man-centered. And when she fails to meet that purpose, according to the world, she fails to be the Church. She fails, as they say, to resemble Jesus Christ. Because, after all, the church's purpose is primarily for men. Well, friend, I don't need to tell you this evening that, of course, the scriptures present a very different view of the church. But it doesn't just present a different view of the church in terms of her calling. How the scriptures define what the church is is also very different than how the world sees her. And so we come to the word of God for this. Friend, you don't need my opinion of what the church of Jesus is. You don't need the world's opinion. You need God's. God's statement of who she is and what she is to be doing. And so we turn to the word of God this evening in 1 Corinthians 1 to find just that. What is this institution that Christ has established? What is it constituted of? And by defining that, then, friend, we are in a good form to be able to define also what our calling pertains to. And so, friend, as we look at this text, we're reminded of something very basic. The text itself seems rather unassuming. It's something we come across all throughout the New Testament. It's this prescript, the apostolic introduction. But, friend, there's so much in this. First of all, in verse 1, we're told at the very beginning, 
that Paul is the one who's writing this as an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. Every time you and I see this simple phrase throughout the New Testament, we're supposed to be mindful of one very basic thing. Whatever comes to us, comes to us as one who writes as the mouthpiece of God. Everything that follows then, friend, binds the conscience, or ought to bind the conscience. It is the voice of God that is speaking here. God, through the Apostle Paul, is telling us something. Addressing the church, but also not only addressing the church primarily in view, but the church through the running ages. We receive this as the word of God. Even if we were standing at the foot of Sinai, when we heard the thunders and we felt the earth quaking, and we knew it was the voice of God speaking, friend, every time you and I see this phrase, we're supposed to take it in the same way. This is the word of God. Now why is that important? It's important because, friend, when he comes to verses 2 and 3 and tells us something about the church, we're giving God's assessment of the church. And not just the church in Corinth, as we'll see in a few minutes' time, but we're giving God's assessment of what this institution is that has been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, that is called the temple of the Most High God, that place where God dwells on earth among men. We're told here in the second verse, not man's opinion of what this is. We're giving God's assessment of the church of Jesus Christ. And so we look at this assessment first of all. And friend, I want you to notice, first of all, he does tell us that he's writing unto the church of God, which is at Corinth. Now, last Lord's Day evening, we took up the broader idea of the church without actually looking at the word itself. And this evening, though it might seem a bit tedious, I want us to do that. I want us to see how this word appears in the New Testament. And I think that may be helpful for us as we look at how the scriptures define for us what the church is. First of all, our word church actually comes from the German. It means it comes from Kirchen. Um, and Kirchen is actually taken from the Greek word, which is karyos. So the idea is, as far as the Germans were concerned, the church is the house of the Lord or the house of God. And so, of course, the word church in the English language is very much sanctified. It's a word that's only ascribed religious meaning. But not so the use of the original word in the New Testament. I want you to notice something. Even in the New Testament, there's a, word, there's a usage of this word that's entirely secular, divorced from the people of God entirely. I'll take you to Acts, for instance. Acts 19, you remember, the Ephesians are in uproar. And here in Acts 19, we're told, that the assembly, that assembly, was confused. And then, as you come to verse 41 of Acts 19, he again says that those who were there dismissed the assembly. What's striking is that word assembly is actually the word ekklesia, which is the same Greek word of the, what, what the apostle uses in verse 2 to describe the people of God at Corinth. Here, in Acts 19, it simply means the assembly. Or the congregation. And in this case, not at all, the people of God. But as you go through the New Testament, you'll find that this word is used, of course, to describe God's people particularly. This word that really has no particular religious meaning becomes very much more a sanctified word. First of all, it's used to describe, for instance, the invisible assembly, congregation, of the elect. And so whenever we read in Ephesians, we we're told here that Christ has been put made head over all things to the church. The church through the running ages. 
All of those, as he says in the fifth chapter, all of those for whom Christ, all of those whom Christ loved and gave himself for. The word church there stands not for any particular congregation, but stands for the whole company of God's people, and not just at one particular time, but for all time. And so, in the writer of the Hebrews, he says this, he's writing to the general assembly and to the church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven. That invisible assembly, that invisible congregation of God's people. And so that's another usage. From the secular general usage, now it takes on a very much more sanctified sense. But that's not even the only way that it's used in the New Testament. It also can describe the universal or the visible assembly of God's people. More in line with what we considered last Lord's Day evening. And for this, you turn to 1 Corinthians 12. There the Apostle writes, For as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. He goes on to say, Now ye are the body of Christ, and members in particular. And God hath set some in the church. Note, note the lack of plurality there. First apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, governments, diversities of tongues. Wherever there is that visible assembly of God's people who have professed faith in Jesus Christ, as we thought about last Lord's Day evening, that too is referred to by the New Testament writers as the church. But then there's even another usage. Take, for instance, what you have in 1 Corinthians 11. He says here to the Corinthians there, when you come together in the church, when ye Corinthians come together in the church, I hear that every division is among you, and I partly believe it. Later on, he tells us, And if they will learn, that if the women learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for a woman to speak in the church. Likewise, as you come to Romans, the Apostle talks about the need to greet those who are the church that is in the house of both Priscilla and Aquila. In that sense, the church there means the public assembly of God's people. Not just the people considered in themselves, but the people as they meet together. And one thing I have to say at this stage. Note what is not part of the usage of this word in the New Testament. Never once does it refer to a building. Never once does it refer to a brick and mortar structure. It always refers to people. And particularly as we're thinking of it this evening, it always refers to the people of God, either considered as their, their identity as the elect of God, either as visible professors or as a worshiping congregation. Never a building. And so it's right for us to call this rather not so much the church, but the meeting house or the church building. Because the New Testament recognizes that the church of Jesus Christ is a living thing. But then you also find, um, in addition to that, that also the church can be used to describe the ruling assemblies of God's people. The council in Jerusalem in Acts 15 was called this. The whole church sent, both sent to Antioch, Paul, and Barnabas. Later on, well, even before that, I suppose, in Matthew 18, you have this. When Christ is speaking about how to deal with the offending brother, what does he say? And if he shall neglect, as the offending brother, to hear them, tell it unto the church. And there, as we'll see, God willing, even next Lord's Day evening, that the church there is primarily the elders in view who are to adjudicate such matters. And then finally, friend, and this is more to our point this evening, it also refers to sacred 
particular assemblies. And that's why you have even this word in the plural throughout the New Testament. Find, of course, the words as they are in Revelation 1-4. John to the seven churches which are in Asia. Grace be unto you in peace from him which is and which was and which is to come. And then Galatians 1-2. Paul addresses not only Galatia as a whole, but to all the churches of Galatia. And again, 1 Corinthians 7. God hath distributed every man as the Lord hath called every one, so let him walk. And so ordain I in all the churches, plural. Particular bodies that the Apostle has in mind here. And friend, I've gone through that somewhat tedious explanation of the various usages of the word in the New Testament to make a very simple point. The definition of the church according to the scriptures is rather fulsome. It's not chaotic, but it is something that requires careful detail. And so this evening, our hope is that we'll gain some of that, some of that detail as we look at the text before us tonight. And so the Apostle writes to the church in Corinth, a particular assembly of God's people, a particular public assembly settled with a ministry, a particular body of those who are called by the name of Jesus Christ. Now, you'll note that he predicates a few things about this body. He says, first of all, that they are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. I think we should hold those two lines together. They are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. And how does the apostle know this? As we'll see in just a few moments time, he knows this because they professed to be so. That is their calling. Yes, that is the sense in, there is a sense in which Paul could be alluding to that idea that God has drawn them and really made them children of God by the work of regeneration. But on a broader sense, as we even saw last Lord's Day evening, the writers of the New Testament deal with men according to what they profess. And the church at Corinth, as we'll see, has professed to be subjugated, subjected rather, to the gospel. They professed to be this. They have called themselves saints, and so the apostle addresses them as saints. He deals with them according to their profession. And what you'll see here also, friend, is that this text here also tells us something about their activity. This is their calling. They're called to be saints. But here is how he also describes them further. With all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, that phrase throughout the scriptures often refers to prayer. Or it even refers to invoking the name of God in an oath. But here what the apostle does is he uses it in another very common way. He talks about one calling upon the Lord to stand in the place of the name Christian. In other words, friend, he's using synecdoche. He's taking a part of the believer's life to describe the whole. Isn't that a striking thing? He looks at the church at Corinth and he says, You profess to be those who call upon the name of the Lord with all of those who do the same. You're numbered among those who who can be characterized as a praying people. We'll come back to that toward the end of our time together. But as we see in this text, the apostle has a high view of the church. And as we said before, this is not merely the church at Corinth. Again, looking at that phrase we just mentioned, He speaks here to the church of Corinthians together with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. So in everything that we've seen up to this point, that they're sanctified in Christ, that they're called to be saints, the apostle says that stands in conjunction with everyone else who calls upon the name of the Lord. 
This describes then all of those who are assemblies of God's people. All of those who profess to be saints as a particular body in a particular place. And it stands, friend, for you and I in Loch Brickland. It stands for us as well. And so what I want us to do just briefly this evening is take this up. I want us to look at this text as it shows us something about what the particular church is supposed to be. What it is according to God's standard and also what it's called to be according to God's command. I want you to notice, friend, that I'm using this word particular in, in a very particular sense. The word here that we're using is a word that has special theological significance. And one theologian put it this way. It really means, that is a particular church, it means a number of visible professors called to be saints, or at least denominated and by judgment of charity, esteemed saints, united together by consent, in order to their having communion with one another and testifying their subjection to Christ and hope of his presence in all his ordinances, designing hereby to glorify his name, propagate his gospel and interest in the world, and promote their mutual edification in that holy faith, which is founded on scripture revelation. In short, friend, what Ridgely is saying there, it's, it's very basic. A particular church is what you have in verse 2. A number of people in a particular location who profess faith in Jesus Christ, who, who are called saints because they professed it, and who are also engaged in seeking His face through His ordinances. That's a particular church. And so the question, of course, is, well, what is its identity and its calling? What relation do the two have together? And that really brings us to our theme then this evening. And that is that particular churches are instituted to promote Christ's regional interests. Particular churches are instituted to promote Christ's regional interests. And I want us to see that under three headings. As we look at this text, I want us to see how the particular church is tied to the church universal, or to see its Catholicity. Then I want us to see the constitution of the church, and finally, assess its calling. First of all, the Catholicity of the church. And we get that from our text itself. The Apostle sees that there is some organic connection between the church at Corinth, though particular, and all of those who call upon the name of the Lord. There is some real connection between them. In order for us to understand that, we do need to go throughout the New Testament to see why that's the case. But I want you to notice that when we look at this text, the Apostle strives to show one very basic idea. That this people that are gathered together in Corinth have a lot in common with those who are outside of Corinth. Note this. They are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. They have one calling. In that they call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're supposed to understand that they are professing Christ Lord as they do so. Now that in and of itself is quite staggering. Here, the, the Apostle tells us that these ones call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now friend, that means that they regard him as a divine person. And so as they claim that they're going to be those who are saints, as they call upon the name of the Lord, they're saying something about Christ. He is their Lord, whom they worship. They have one calling, one profession. There's one preoccupation. They call upon the name of the Lord, which stands in place not only for their profession, but even for their activity. There are those who worship God. And finally, we're also supposed to see here, they are those 
than who stand organically tied to all the rest who do the same. Now, beloved, when we look at this text, we're supposed to understand that there is a real connection then between what we were looking at last Lord's Day evening and what we have before us tonight. The church visible and universal, what we often call the church visible and Catholic, is really and integrally tied to particular churches as well. And so what do we make of this word Catholic? Well, first of all, in its most basic sense, we mean universal. But it's important for us to understand that when we refer to the Catholic Church, we do not refer merely to a body of people. We are referring to an institution. Bannerman writes this, he says, The Catholic visible church is not a mere abstract idea, not a convenient expression for the number of all those Christians who visibly profess the faith of Christ throughout the world. He goes on to say it is much more than this. It is made up of all Christians who, visibly professing the faith of Christ, are constituted by that profession into one corporate body. The Catholic visible church is recognized in Scripture as a real society having corporate privileges and standing in a certain outward covenant to Christ. And the point that we're driving at in the second verse is that the church at Corinth is part of that institution. She's integrally tied to that one body. Now friend, what does that mean? Well, that means that she makes one profession of faith. That's through the running ages. The fundamentals of the gospel are ensconced in her own personal profession. And then that she stands integrally tied to all of those who profess the same. Now, beloved, if you look at this text, it's important to remember that what you have here is this idea. It's all throughout the scriptures. And when we think about the visible church and its universal aspects, it is one field, one body, one house. Those are the analogies that the Word of God gives to describe this universal institution. And we can't miss that. And we can't miss that because there's a very practical import for us. Friend, as we stand in a particular congregation that is part of this universal visible church, that means we belong to this one house. That, as we saw last Lord's Day evening, is called the temple of the God. The Apostle puts it in the, right, in the epistle of the Hebrews this way. Describing this universal aspect, he says, Every house is built by some man, but he that built all things is God. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which were spoken after. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are. Friend, do you see how the apostles look at particular churches in conjunction with the whole? It is a holy thing, engaged in holy things. You and I stand in the same institution in which Moses stood. But more than that, you and I stand in that institution over which Christ stands as a son. If we have a low view of the church, beloved, we have missed the New Testament account of her. No, it is one house, the particular congregation being part of this one field, it is holy. Now that brings us from Catholicity to the question of constitution. What about this particular church that here meets at Corinth? And friend, I want you to notice, first of all, that these are those who are called to be saints. And I do take that to mean primarily those who are calling themselves saints. 
who professed their faith, and we say that for a very basic reason. When the Apostle speaks of the Macedonians rejoicing in the church at Corinth, they say this, those Christians rejoiced in the church at Corinth for their professed subjection unto the gospel of Christ. The idea is that the church of Corinth has gathered a number of those people who have made profession of faith. And that's the first point that we can't miss. A particular congregation is constituted of those who profess faith in Jesus Christ. Who profess to be saints. We can't miss that. Because, friend, what we're also supposed to understand here is that they are not only a professing people, not only called saints, but note what he predicates of them. There are also those who call upon the name of the Lord. Now, as I said before, that involves the idea of a profession of faith. Of course it does. But it also includes also that other aspect of devotion, particularly of worship. They're not only calling themselves something, but they're engaged in one particular work that answers to that profession. In other words, friend, this is a worshiping assembly, observing the ordinances of God. This is the people the Apostle is writing to, and we're going to see this in just a few minutes, This is a people that are really seeking the face of God, calling upon the name of the Lord in public congregations. And that too is what constitutes a particular church. They're a body of people in a particular location that is gathered not only to make a public profession of faith, but also gathered together as a society to observe the ordinances established by Christ, to call upon the name of the Lord together. Friend, I want you to note that there are three aspects then that belong to this particular church. And just briefly, first of all, it's this idea of profession that we've already alluded to. And this profession, you have to understand, friend, also needs to take upon itself a very precise character. Which is why membership in the Catholic visible church is different than membership in a local congregation. Note what the Apostle says here. He says to the church of Corinth, again, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing. And that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Later on in the epistle of Philippians, he writes, he urges them that they would stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. In other words, friend, this is a society that is met together under one profession of faith. One ex- one. One expression of the truth as we find it from the word of God. It is one profession, not a mixed profession that we have here. We'll come back to that, God willing, next Lord's Day evening. But for now, that's what we have to recognize. These are a people called to hold the same things. A society that is joined together under one profession of faith. But they're also engaged in one particular activity as well. They're engaged for worship. In Colossians 3.16, of course, you remember that this is a phrase that takes us back to what we sing. But note the context of the singing. Here the, the Apostle writes, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Catch the one another there. This is a public gathering of God's people for worship. And then also, when you come to 1 Timothy 2, You have a reference to the same thing. He says, I will, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. The striking part of that text is he's actually alluding to a text in Malachi, which talks about the worship of God being spread all throughout the nations, not merely contained in Israel any longer. This is what the particular body of God's people do. It is a worshiping congregation. This is her calling. Her calling is to be a worshiping society. 
a praising fellowship. That's part of her identity and constitution. But then, friend, you can't miss this either. She's also a, she's also a disciplined institution. When the apostle writes to the church at Corinth, he asks, Is it so that there is no not a wise man among you? No, not one that shall be able to judge between his brethren. How is it then, brethren, when ye are come together, every one of you hath a psalm, hath a doctrine, hath a tongue, hath a revelation, hath an interpretation? In 1 Corinthians 14, he goes on to urge, Let all things be done unto edifying. Let all things be done decently and in order. But from what does he mean in that text? Well, this is really what brings us to the idea that lies behind a particular society, a fellowship. You see, even though the ordinances belong to the Catholic visible church, just as do the ministry, which we'll come to about going next Lord's Day evening, the Apostle says this, that those ordinances are to be enjoyed in an orderly way. They must come about in a way that is according to Christ's institution. Well then, friend, how is it that the Word of God, which is His ordinance, how is the preaching of it supposed to be done? He tells us in Romans 10, How shall they preach except they be sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good good things. You see, friend, he must be sent, the preacher. But should all be preachers? My brethren, says James, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. Further, are all rulers. Writes the writer of the Hebrews, Obey them that have rule over you. Not all have rule over you, but they who have rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they must give account. And then he writes to Timothy to this idea, showing that even the preaching of God's word is under the discipline that Christ has established. He says here, As I besought thee that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Timothy is entrusted with the obligation. To make sure that those who preach are first called, they're sent, and that their doctrine is pure. You see, friend, in order for a society to enjoy those ordinances, it must be done in an orderly way. In order for the ministry to be really administered as Christ has required it, friend, it's required that these are observed orderly, done in the way that Christ would have us do them. But if that's the constitution of the church... Friend, I want you to note here that that brings us to her calling. And we close with this. You see, the church here is called to be saints. With all of those who are in every place who call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. That is her calling as well as her profession. This is who she is supposed to be. And what you can't miss, friend, as we look at this text, is that she's called this... What's striking is the Apostle makes it a point to say that she is called this in Corinth. Now, we can't make too much of that, but, but the idea is very simple. There is a body of saints who profess faith and who worship Christ in Corinth. And as you read throughout this epistle, from the 1st to the 16th chapter, you find the Apostle urges this time and time again, that they would be a people who live up to their profession. What's striking is he doesn't say you really need to change your evangelistic program. He doesn't say you really need to be looking for revival. No, if the church at Corinth is going to exhibit Christ, what does the apostle urge upon the church? Get your house in order. 
Why? Because she was called to be saints. That's how, of course, the apostles intends them to understand their being epistles. In 2 Corinthians he writes, Ye are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read of all men, for as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ. Corinth at that time was the provincial capital. It was the capital of all of Achaia. It was one of the most prominent port cities in all of the empire. And so when you read this phrase, known and read of all men, friend, you're supposed to understand that the apostle is alluding there to the fact that she is in Corinth. The world should be seeing that she's living according to her profession. That's her calling. That's what she's, that's what she's been instituted to be. An epistle that all men can read. But how is it that this will be made known? Friend, I think this is perhaps the point at which we stand so contrary to the world's definition of the church. Why this is so integral that we take up this subject this evening. We were told last Lord's Day evening that the people of God visibly concerned are a household. They are called the household of God. A temple in which the Lord dwells. But friend, I want you to note what the Apostle says to that same effect in 1 Corinthians. He asks, and what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And then he adds the exhortation, Wherefore come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you. And he shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Now that's the Apostle's assessment, his holy and errant assessment of the church. This is how God looks at the church. She is a temple in which God dwells. But the Apostle has already said that the church at Corinth has been read by all men as an epistle. And so surely the world now sees that God dwells among the Corinthians. How so? That leads us to what the Apostle says in the 14th chapter. How is it that it's manifest that the church of Jesus Christ in Corinth is the temple of God? He writes here in verse 25 of 1 Corinthians 14. Under the preaching of the word are the secrets of his heart made manifest, speaking of the sinner. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is in you of the truth. Do you catch that, friend? The church at Corinth is called to be a temple, a local temple, a place where God dwells. He walks and dwells among them. But according to the apostle, how is it that the unbeliever sees that? Where is it? When is it that the unbeliever really sees that God dwells among the Corinthians? It's under the preaching of God's word, in the worship of God's people, really. Note what he says again. It is under that preaching that the secrets of his heart, the unbeliever, are made manifest. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and note this, and report that God is in you of a truth. Friend, I'll close seeing my time here with just a thought. Beloved, as we take up this text, 
we find that the local particular church is part of that household. Part of a professing household of God. In which the worship of God is kept, the discipline of Christ is instituted. And so what really is her calling, according to the Apostle? Friend, her calling is to set forward the glory of Jesus Christ, chiefly in her public assemblies. I think that's something that our our culture today really does not like. But according to the Apostle, that's precisely how the world will see that that she is truly the temple of the living God. But not only that, friend, as the people of God who profess faith here in Lock Brickland go out into the world, they are to be separate, not isolated from the world, but manifestly people who are trying to live according to what they profess. Why are there national churches? This is perhaps not the right time to, to bring this up, but I will. Why are there national churches? Why are there churches, for instance, in Scotland, Ireland? Why are there churches that, well, why was there even a church of the entire Roman Empire? Well, here's why, beloved. God had done such a great work that not only did a local society come together with that desire to profess faith and to live according to that profession and worship Christ in the institution, in the, those, those things that Christ had instituted, Not only had regions done the same, but whole nations had. And so they became national particular churches. Beloved, that's something that we should long to see revived. Because in those moments what you have is the very thing that you have in our text. Not just a family. Not just a village. But whole nations gathered, as we read in Isaiah 19, that are called by the name of the Lord. But it's through the church that these things will be done. Through the church. As we look at verse 3 just briefly, there is here, friend, great comfort for those who belong to Christ of the truth. He says, Grace be unto you in peace from God our Father. And from the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle takes two very well-known customs of the ancient world. If you were Greek, you would use the first phrase, grace be to you, charos, charos. If you were Hebrew, Jew, you would say shalom. In the first case, what the, the greeting meant was let every good thing come to you. The second phrase, let all peace be known to you. Friend, for those of us who stand truly in the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 3 stands as a promise. As we profess faith in Christ, seek to exalt him in this place in Lockbrickland. Friend, the apostle promises in the name of God that through Jesus Christ, grace and peace, the greatest real and true good, the greatest peace that can be known is promised us in Christ. You see, friend, that brings us back to how we began. The church is not man-centered. She was not instituted by man. She doesn't profess to be for man's good only. She's an institution appointed by Christ. Oh, but beloved, she's also an institution She's an institution that Christ has promised to bring grace and peace to them as they seek his face. 
May the Lord help us to be such people here. In my prayer.